Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, government consultants and contractors are in the gun again. National is keeping up the offensive over the millions government departments spend on consultants and contractors. When should taxpayers expect to see the, quote, many millions of dollars in savings, given consultants' spend has ballooned to $1.7 billion on his watch? National promises to slash $400 million of the splash on consultants and contractors and put the money into subsidising childcare and, at the same time, cut the number of public servants. But just how easy is it to do it? I'd be surprised if there was $400 million worth of reductions in expenditure. You'd have to find $400 million worth of work that you don't want to have happen. So... Who are these consultants and contractors? And in the words of Mike Hosking... Just what is it you do all day when you're employed on something that doesn't have a shape to it? And what would happen if the so-called consultant gravy train stopped? The alternative is the public service raising a standing army uh, that sit around and wait for work to arrive. My old desk does an arabesque In the morning when I first arrived That's the theme tune from Gliding On, the 1980s sitcom about the public service. And I'll explain later what it's got to do with this podcast. But first, RNZ investigative journalist Phil Pennington says it's a perennial story. It became a flashpoint at the end of 2017. Really interesting, there was a leak of a spreadsheet from the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment to the Herald. And what the spreadsheet showed was that MBC was understating how much it was spending on contractors and consultants, and the understatement was about half. A leaked spreadsheet shows the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment doubling its spending on contractors in four years. It was spending about $70 million while saying it was spending about 40. It also shows a quadrupling of the number of non-employees being paid more than $200,000 a year. What then transpired was in 2018, uh, MB sent in the dogs to try and find the leaker, as you do, do. Um, but there was also a review, and this review came back, and it said, you are not clearly enough reporting what is going on here. It's hard for the public to figure out what you're actually spending outside on these people. And from there, then, you had changes coming into place. Back in 2018, the cap on public servants was removed. The aim, reducing the government's contractor and consultant spend. The minister at this time, Chris Hipkins, saying, well, this is naturally what you would do. If you're going to have fewer contractors and consultants, then you're going to have to bring more skill in-house. And since then, the number of public servants has grown, but the government's still spending just as much taxpayer money on contractors and consultants. Why do all these government departments use consultants and contractors anyway? Because there are, what, tens of thousands of public servants. So there's 60,000 public servants now. I think when the cap went in, it was about 40. It got to a peak of 62,000 two years ago. And some of that later rises due to COVID. But you've also got uh, growth in population. Um, and so that is what the Public Service uh, Commission say that over the past few years, the government's uh, invested more into frontline service to services to respond to high population growth. Isn't it the truth that the government has hired an extra 14,000 public servants while in office? 
whose main job appears to be hiring, recruiting, managing and paying for consultants. Uh, Mr Speaker, if the member wants to refer to increased social workers who deal with some of our most vulnerable children in that way, if he wants to refer to the extra work, people working in corrections to ensure that we are, re are doing a better job of rehabilitating prisoners, if he wants to talk about the people who work on the front line at MSD getting people off benefits and into work in that way, then he could do that. But as you say, why the contractors and consultants? Well, that's because they don't have the skills in-house often. They only need those skills for a limited amount of time, so they don't want to take on permanent or even fixed terms. So IRD is a classic. IRD's spending on, I call it CNC, contractors and consultants, they went through the roof when they started their big IT overhaul. Uh, we have had to replace a number of IT legacy systems. Um, that is a consultant-led industry. And their spend went to $200 million a year. It was twice as much as even MB. And what's the difference between a contractor and a consultant? So your contractors, say they're doing the IT project, they'll work inside the department actually working on the nuts and bolts. So with IRD, their contractor spend was $200 million. It's since dropped back to 110 million because they've finished that project. So it's halved. Mm. So these things swing around wildly. Your consultants are more like the Deloitte's and the EYs. They sit outside and the departments go, go to them and say, can you do this piece of work on this project to tell us about how to manage it or whatever? And there's also a third category, oh. which is, oh, yes. <laughs> so when MB was spending... 100 million on contractors and consultants. They were also spending 50 million on professional services. Now, professional services are things like lawyers. Um, and if you were uh, MB, you'd also spend it on things like geotechnical engineers. Do they have to actually pitch for the work? Yeah. So it is a competitive process? Yes and no. Uh. You can tell from the annual reports if they've pitched or if they've simply been brought in. In the annual reviews, there are big, long charts the big ministries have, and there's hundreds of names in these of all the contractors and consultants, and it's got the length of duration. It's often got the rates, you know, these rates that we hear about. The media mega merger is paying out up to nearly $9,000 a week for some high-paying jobs being done by contractors. That is the thing that people balk at, really, isn't it? I mean, when you hear about $1,000 a day or 9000 a week, is that justifiable? It's um, what the market will bear. I mean, you do hear about people who are tired of being in the public service and they go out contracting and they love it and they typically they seem to live in the wider wrapper and come on the train. <laughs> I don't know why that is. When I looked at the rates, they were talking things like uh, IT, so that's where you're going to have your big rates. 130 to 160 an hour was pretty typical. Business analysts, 130 an hour. Help desk support, though, you know, $40 an hour. Policy sort of help. 125, top rate of 150 an hour. But helping with accounts, you know, you're getting into them with $100. So there's a whole range. And the overall rates get skewed a lot because last year there were 3,500 um, lowly paid administrators. So that sort of skewed the results. But if you're looking at the high end, the thing that people exercised, particularly in IT, that's where you're getting those um, really big pays. But it's actually not IT. I think that gets people going. It's when they hear about things like um, project team leaders and uh, or communications people, yeah. jobs that they think, well, that doesn't sound very difficult. How come they're getting 1000 a day? Did um, Michael Wood get the memo when he spent $51 million on consultants for a cancelled bike bridge and $53 million on consultants for a non-existent light rail? 
Oh, Mr. Speaker, it's clear that not everybody got the memo. Uh, for, for example, for example, I'm aware that the chair of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council spent money employing consultants to write the one substantive report the council managed to come up with. So, those highly paid consultocrats, as one commentator called them, they're usually linked to the big four. NBR co-editor Hamish McNichol has been looking into them and how much they make from government jobs. The big four is the sort of major global accounting firm, so PwC, Deloitte, KPMG and EY. I mean, they're the ones that people really love to moan about when it comes to how much the government spends on consultants because they seem to, to make big money from it. Yeah, they do. And I guess they're sort of the most public-facing of the consulting firms as well. It is interesting because their sort of history and background was accounting firms first. There's things like tax and audit, but increasingly over the years they've aligned themselves with consulting and rebranded as professional services firms rather than accounting firms. And is that because they there is so much money to be made in selling their services to the government? Pretty much, and not just the government, but corporates and businesses as well, particularly since the GFC, I suppose, consulting has sort of taken off as a lot of companies can't really afford to have those sorts of skill sets in-house. So you've seen the big four especially expand into all sorts of new service lines, ESG, environmental social governance um, experts, tech, cybersecurity. A lot of these firms have sort of dedicated financial services arms now as well because there's been so much regulation introduced into that sector for bankers and insurance. So it's sort of a result of cost-cutting at companies and then also a raft of new legislation and regulation coming in as well. But then obviously on the back of that, um, governments have been cutting down the public service a bit as well um, and looking to, to focus on costs and at the same time trying to introduce new agendas and new policies and you've you've got to employ someone to help you uh, come up with what that looks like. Except, you know, this government it hasn't cut down public servant numbers. They've actually increased their numbers and increased the amount that um, it spends on on consultants and contractors. I think what's important to consider is I guess, why companies, governments, anyone would look to use consultants in the first place. And they're effectively an insurance policy on decision making. Um, there's that old saying, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM or nobody ever got fired for hiring McKinsey. The idea being that these are sort of big blue chip global brands that you bring in and you can point to them. If you If you use a PwC or a Deloitte, it allows you to say that you've sort of undertaken due diligence and it's a protection against anything going wrong. And then if something goes wrong, you can sort of point to point to that and say, well, we got the best advice in the game possible. Is that true though? I mean, are they are they the experts then? That's the thing that's hard to judge, right? They would certainly point to the fact, you know, the big four specifically here, we are part of these big global networks which employ tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people all around the world. We've been doing this for decades. 
we've got the best staff, we've got the brand recognition, and it's just sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It just feeds back onto itself. And if people just continually accept that they're the best at doing this and that they have the best people, then people will keep turning to them as well. You've looked into the numbers of, of the big four in New Zealand and how much they have grown. What percentage of their work comes from government contracts and things? So at NBR, we started a project last year called Bookkeepers, which was basically just trying to get a handle on how big these firms are here in New Zealand because they're they're private companies and so they don't have to report revenue or or anything like that. But they they do internationally, and so I was curious to see if they would give us a hint as to the sort of money and size that they are here in New Zealand. And they gave us all sort of revenue bands. Um, So Deloitte and PwC are the biggest. Um, In 2021, their revenue was between $300 and $350 million. Um, Both of those grew sort of 7% and 5% year on year, which is pretty decent. KPMG and EY are the next biggest at 200, between 200 million and 250 million. Um, They were sort of faster growing at 11% and 22%, which is um, pretty impressive. Of that, take Deloitte, for instance, the Labor government, since they have come into power, has spent $115.9 million specifically with Deloitte. So that's over the last six years or so. Deloitte's revenue is between $300 and $350 million a year. And then within that context, $115 million has been spent with them by the government over the last six years. It's it's obviously not insignificant, but it's not like it's the driving force of these firms at the same time. Clearly, a lot of the revenue is still coming from corporate and other clients, not just the government. KPMG's consulting team exists to help you emerge stronger, creating a more productive and sustainable future for your business, people and communities. And the question is, are they actually value for money? Because... You know, we do hear stories about them charging $1,000 a day or $9,000 a week for their services. So they charge big money, don't they? Yeah, it's not cheap. Um, And again, I guess it comes back down to that sort of what are you willing to pay for um, an insurance policy on your decision making? I think within the New Zealand context, it's been difficult to, to get a handle on just how good the government is at actually buying consulting services. Um, In Australia last week, you saw a story that the New South Wales government had introduced an initiative to cap the rates on consultants. Um, And they found there was a report out that had basically found that that saved taxpayers about 150 Australian million dollars over the last five years. Capped rates, basically sort of fixed fees for these services. Um, Professional services firms, big four accounting, law firms, all of that have always traditionally billed hourly rates. Um, And there's all sorts of perverse incentives there, obviously, because um, you rack up the hours, you get paid more. Mm. Whereas with fixed fees, it helps you sort of focus or helps your service provider focus a little bit more on making sure that they're actually providing you the service at a cost that you understand, but also um, in the most efficient way possible as well. And so overseas, you've seen, I mean, in the UK, um, there's been a whole industry pop up Um, in the legal sector specifically called legal operations, which is basically they sit in-house in companies or in government agencies and their sole job is to try and drive down the spend on external consultants and external advice. The irony is that a lot of that has led to in-house advisory teams within government and within businesses swelling again. So 
you decide that your external advisors are too expensive, so you bring in all that expertise in-house, um, but then your in-house cost gets too high again. So it's sort of, again, mm. just a, a feedback loop. Is there any sign that the government here is looking at capping the rates? Not that I've heard, but I think that would be a good idea. But, I mean, the sort of irony, again, would be that you'd probably need to hire a consultant to teach you how to procure these services better or to help cut this consulting spend again. So <laughs> they are uh, pervasive. But these these are serious organisations. I mean, around the world, the big four would each clock up $40 billion plus in revenue. So they're, they're massive organisations. They do have lots of really skilled people. It's not like they're just nobody's providing this advice. There, there is um, some worth there, I think. With... Um... Christopher Luxon talking about cutting four hundred million from the consultants and contractors. Is it likely that the big four would would be hit by this? This or, or are they just too essential? It would be a bit of a hit to their to their services, I guess. And I think all of this scrutiny that we've seen over the last few weeks as well will probably focus minds on pricing and things like that a bit as well. But they are. They're very good at adapting. Um, they're very nimble and very good at chasing where they see the money. And of course, if you are cutting four hundred million on external spend, but still wanting to to drive any sort of change, you're going to probably have to spend that money somewhere. So maybe the public service has to increase as a result, or you just don't do anything. You don't introduce any policies or try and consult on any change at all. Such a comfort to know it's got no place to go. It's always there. Is it fair to say it seems that governing anything and rolling out anything is increasingly complex? Think about three waters. Yeah. If it's business as usual, right? Yeah. If things are business as usual, you can tick along. It's a bit like gliding on, isn't it? And then we all have our eight-hour days. Yeah. What time did you go to lunch last Wednesday? Just put 12 o'clock. But was it 12? <laughs> you signed in at 1. And it must have been 12 o'clock. What difference does it make? It is important to put down the exact time you arrive and go. It's for your own protection. This is considered to be proof of your whereabouts. So Jim can prove that he came back from lunch, but not that he went. (laughs) Well, I have to take it seriously, even if you don't. I'm the one responsible to Mad Max. And where's Beryl? I've gone to the dunny. (laughs) But everything in government these days seems to be not quite crisis to crisis, but well, health is a crisis. Yeah, constant restructuring. That's often seen, though, as being a unnecessary, and I was just talking to someone in the public service yesterday who was saying, yeah, they had been through this again and again and again, and it was just not helpful, and it was these outside consultants telling them, and they're the experts, they do the job, what to do, and having these endless focus groups, etc. But then there's the expert stuff, and the expert stuff is the stuff that, you know, you're going to have trouble getting rid of that. Yeah. So, so any end, government is going to really struggle to hold back those costs. But what they, I think what they could do uh, is be more careful about these reforms and try to change the business as usual stuff. You know, trying to find a problem and, and rather than going, actually, you know, these are the real problems, water or whatever, and we need to put the expertise in there. We're going to have to pay for it. But we don't have to go and restructure this or that, you know. 
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Hamish McNichol and Phil Pennington. Kakiti anō.